Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and today we're joined by David Zumbrennan, who was stranded on a Disney cruise ship for an extended period of time due to COVID and well, is now back safely on land. And I definitely want to hear more about this story, David. So thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Christian. All right. Well, you got to tell me about the Disney cruise ship and the COVID thing. What happened? Uh, well, uh, when COVID's not taking place, I currently work for Disney Cruise Line. Uh, I'm the crew activities manager. Um, and so the easiest way to explain that is it's like being the cruise director for the crew. So I don't interact with the guests. I just plan all the activities for crew when they're not working. And uh, so we, I was on the ship on contract when COVID hit. And uh, like everything else, it shut down rather quickly. Um, so I still had my contract. And so I stayed on contract for um, five weeks and then finished April 17th, um, but was unable to get off the ship until May 23rd. Um, so I was at sea for 70 days. <laughs> uh, and basically what was happening is... Uh, CDC and different regulations were um, constantly changing. And so at one point we were able to uh, fly home and then drive home and then that changed and we couldn't. Uh, and then we were going to have to quarantine for two weeks. So finally, uh, Disney was amazing and they basically flew us home on the corporate jets and we hopscotched across the country, uh, the 11 Americans that were left on the ship. And uh, that's how I got home was like Bob Iger's jet. <laughs> Okay, I've got to go back here a little bit. So you are on this ship, and I recall seeing on the news that some ships had difficulty finding a place to to dock, to, to go into port because countries weren't letting them. So where were you on the ship, and where did you eventually dock? And then walk us through this whole thing with the Disney, Disney private jet, like taking all these people back to home. All right. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So we, uh, there are four ships in the fleet and uh, three of them are currently, were currently on the East coast at that time. So uh, we are out of Canaveral, Port Canaveral. Uh, and we also have Castaway Key. Uh, and so literally what would happen is we would pull into dock uh, into Canaveral, just get supplies. Uh, nobody could really get off the ship. We'd just get a, another supply for two weeks. And then most of that time, we'd then pull out four miles, literally, and just anchor. Um, and we could see land, <laughs> and we knew everything that was going on. This is, you know, the height of COVID. And uh, we just kind of watched on the news everything that was unfolding, but we were on our, our little ship world. And uh, and then every couple of weeks, once we got permission from the Bohemian government, we were able to go down to Castaway Key, which is a private island, Disney's private island. Uh, and that's where we could actually get off um, and just kind of enjoy uh, land, so to speak, for about two days. And then we went back up to Canaveral and we literally would just dock day after day or anchor, sorry, anchor day after day and then pull in until people could get off. Um, and then when it came to us finally going home, it was actually about a three-week process for the Americans to get home. Uh, so Disney was great about trying to charter different flights for different crew. Um, on, on, in a regular operation, I'll have 1,500 crew on our big ships and about 1,000 on the small ships. So they were working with 50, 60, 70 different countries to get crew home. And as you know, every country has different rules and regulations. Um, so really, initially, they had asked us how 
once we got home, would there be a safe place for us to kind of quarantine? Because CDC had said, even though we'd been on a ship by ourselves, we still needed a quarantine. And uh, so we met with the captain and he went through all the Americans and what they were doing at, at this time. So this is about seven weeks into it. They got all the ships together and they kind of shifted everyone around. So all the Europeans generally went on to the Magic and the Magic sailed to Dover, England, where it still is. So they could get those crew home. Um, a bunch of the Caribbean countries, so uh, the Jamaicans, uh, Bermuda Bohemians, all of those got on a different ship, and they literally hopscotched country to country to get them home. Uh, and then they put all the Americans on the train. And uh, at one point, they were going to put us in the Disney housing, which is now sitting empty, the college program housing, and quarantine us for two weeks, put us on a commercial flight, and then um, get us home. And then we'd quarantine again. Uh, and for whatever reason, I think part was they just they wanted to just get us home. Uh, and uh, so they worked with uh, DAG, Disney Aviation Group, who knew <laughs> they existed. And uh, they literally got all the Americans on two different flights. There were 11 of us. And uh, we got off on May 23rd and hopscotched across the country. So my specific flight, we started in, uh, we went from Orlando. We got off in Cape Canaveral. And we left Orlando and went to Centerville, Florida, which is up by the Panhandle. And then we went to Denver and then we flew to Provo and then it went to Portland and then it went to Reno and then it went to Burbank. And that was our specific flight. Uh, and the other flight went Florida to Virginia to bed, uh, to Massachusetts, uh, to, I think Detroit, Reno, and then Burbank. So we all went our own ways and they literally dropped us off in our, Right there on the tarmac, they pulled my friend who picked me up. They literally pulled us right then, right on the tarmac. We walked off and hopped in the car, and that's how we got home. It was a crazy experience. Um, yeah, we had an amazing pilot, and we had a stewardess that was like, they had made a little menu for us, uh, and they were just baffled that we'd been at sea for 70 days. Uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. <laughs> It sounds incredible. 70 days at sea. You mentioned that you're responsible for managing the activities of the crew. How do you keep the crew engaged and motivated for 70 days? You know, that, that's a really long time. I mean, I'm just curious as a crew member and also as a person responsible for crew, you know, what's the mindset? Um, it, it definitely went through a roller coaster. You know, when, it, when this first started, it was, it was the first week everybody was out and about. Um, you know, the great thing is we were able to utilize some of the areas and utilize the ship where the guests are. And a lot of the crew don't necessarily have uh, the privileges or, or get up into those spaces. So we were able to go into the Walt Disney Theater and the other theaters, the Buena Vista Theater. We were able to use the guest pools, um, the guest bar areas and different things like that. Uh, so the first week was pretty easy. Everyone was just kind of like, oh, this is great. This is an amazing experience. And then as things started to continue, it really became, um, you know, an issue of, of what can we do to keep the crew entertained, not from a, not necessarily from a front, only from a fun perspective, but also from a mental, mental health status, as well as kind of a physical fitness thing. So uh, eventually they moved the crew gym literally upstairs onto the open deck and just drilled it right in. Like that was amazing. Uh, we had working with HR, we had some great classes that they were able to teach uh, Disney University, which is another area 
you know, we were able to just get all kinds of things. It was quite impressive. Some of the collaboration, um, working with Disney plus, we were able to get some of that content. Uh, we have our own crew channel. And so we were putting stuff there. Um, but it, it was very different, you know, literally you're going from a schedule of planning crew activities from five or six or seven at night till two in the morning to now 10 30 in the morning until midnight. <laughs> um, so, you know, just like in a regular time, we, it was realizing that some of the crew, <clears throat> sorry, just want to relax. Um, especially as crew continued to finish their contract. So we, every Friday, which was normally when we debar crew, we had crew that would finish their contract that couldn't go home. Uh, and so they literally were now on a Disney vacation cruise, <laughs> as we kind of joked about. Um, and so it was trying to motivate and keep them staying out and physically active and mentally alert instead of just hunkering in your room, which you could do all day because you're off contract. Um, and balancing that with those that were still working, um, you know, and, and trying to get home and those that wanted to get home and those that wanted to stay. And, uh, like I said, it was a very different experience because we'd watch the news and we'd see, you know, New York completely empty and all this stuff. And we were literally in our own little bubble floating there out in the, you know, bay and the ocean, just like, okay, well, what's next? Well, speaking of what's next, you eventually did get off the ship and you ended up in Provo, Utah. Is that where you're? coming to us from currently? Correct. Yep. Where I grew up and my family. And what happens with Disney? I mean, are they ever going to get the cruise thing back up and running? I mean, things are so crazy here right now, especially in the States where COVID is just taking off. I'm just really curious how the industry recovers. Yeah, it will. It will definitely be interesting to see what happens. Um, I, I would say from top to bottom, the entire industry has to change. You, know, you obviously have your guest experience. Um, and then from my side, the, the whole crew experience, you know, most of the crew are in double cabins. Um, our crew spaces are not exactly really large. So it's maneuvering, you know, dining and all that stuff. But uh, it's an interesting industry because you you have your health and you know, safety and all of that with COVID. But in addition to that, you've got U.S. public health and all these other rules and regulations you're following. So, um you know, it, it will be very different when, when things go back. Uh, we know that currently the CDC has said the earliest any U.S. ship can, can cruise is October 1st. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to start October 1st. That just means that's at, at this point when things can happen, start moving. Uh, you know, I know that Disney and in, in talking with them, they're working very hard from top to bottom on, on every experience, you know, the crew experience, the guest experience, the character appearances, eating. Uh, how do you do the shows? How do you do movements in the hallways? Um, you know, on board, just on board and embark and debark. So uh, I know they're working on that. They actually called us uh, about a week and a half ago just to see how we were doing. So that was really, really nice. Uh, but even then, when we get started, it'll be one ship at a time. So uh, it's it's going to be a while. <laughs> wow. Well, you're right. I I didn't even realize the complexities involved. You just think about, oh, well, there's a lot of people in a small space, but not that cruise ships are small, let's say in a in close quarters, but that's just an incredible undertaking. Well, we've talked for 10 minutes about COVID and Disney and all that kind of stuff. And our listeners are probably thinking, well, when are you going to get to the games in Salt Lake? Why don't you tell us a little bit as we hop in the time machine and go back to the Salt Lake 2002 games? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, and just how you found your way to the to the committee. 
Um, I joined SLOC in June of 1999 um, after I'd returned home from my LDS mission. Um, and uh, I wanted to participate in the Olympics. And, and my experience kind of started even before then. I, um, I remember watching Barcelona, and that was 92. And I remember saying to myself, I was a freshman in high school. And I remember thinking, I'm going to graduate from high school and I'm going to Atlanta. That's what I want to do. It's going to be the Centennial Games. That's, you know, that's, what, I, that's what I'll do. Um, and uh, I remember telling my parents that and they said, yeah, okay, have fun, whatever. <laughs> Good luck. And, you know, uh, and um, then 95 came along, 1995. And that's obviously when the bid, you won the bid. Um, and I remember the, the torch relay coming through for uh, Atlanta in 96. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. And uh, so then I went to Atlanta and I, I volunteered. Um, I was worked basically in the aquatic center. I'm a little bit with the Today Show, but it was more kind of a food and beverage role. But a lot of it was actually making sure that the water was filled on the field of play for um, like the swimmers and the divers and whatever. And during that time, I actually ran into Tom Welch and I mentioned to him, hey, I'm from Utah. Uh, you know, I really am going on my mission. I want to come back and, and work for the games. And he said, you know, come visit me when you get back. And then I came back and obviously everything had changed. Um, but I basically called him up and said, I'm interested. And I started as an intern in education with uh, Daniel and Judy Stanfield. So Daniel Pacheco. So that's how I initially kind of got into the organizing committee with SLOT. That's an amazing story. You happen to run into Tom Welch in Atlanta, of all places. What was uh, that volunteer experience like for you? And did that just reinforce your drive even more to work for the games in Salt Lake? Absolutely. It was it was amazing. Um, you know, if people had told me that 22 years I'd still be doing the Olympics after just being in Atlanta. I would have been like, yeah, whatever. Um, it was more than I thought it would be. It was it was it was just an amazing experience you know, on, on all kinds of levels for me. I had just graduated from high school. So it's kind of like, you know, going out into the world and, and literally that's what the games are. You know, you literally get people from all over the world. And I would go to the Olympic park every single day, Centennial Olympic park. Um, and I had bought a brick and so I would go find my brick and, uh, they had the pin of the day and I would go in and get my pin of the day. And, uh, it was, it was just amazing. And, you know, I left and I was like, this is, this is what it's about. This is what I want to do. And, uh, I think that's where my passion began is, is realizing, you know, the games are such an amazing experience, but now to be able to help create because people will come and they know it's going to be great. It's going to be a good experience, but that's where the fun comes and the magic, so to speak, is now we can create it to make it that much more amazing. Um, and that was really, I think, my drive to then want to continue to do it. So you join Daniel Pacheco and Judy in education as an intern correct <laughs> how long did you stay an intern and what was what was your eventual role so i was supposed to be doing the intern for i believe it was six months but it ended up being about two months uh and then from there i moved into volunteer staffing uh, so i was in 257 <laughs> and uh, that was our home and uh you know it was creating the the you know team 2002 service center as it was called. Um, and we began with literally no one and eventually grew to, you know, getting all the applications. And, um, you know, it was, it was fascinating to watch it grow from such a small group of people. My direct supervisor was Kristen Lundgren. 
at the time. Um, and uh, that's where I started. And part of our job and role was taking the internet applications and putting those in. And then when we opened the service center, the phone calls and different things like that. And along the way, I just, I wanted to get my hands in everything. So I worked with the mascots. I worked with ceremonies. Um, I was friends with Powder and Copper. I was an audience leader for the opening and closing ceremony. I worked with NOC services. Um, yeah. So I kind of tried to get as much in as I could while I was there to kind of gain that experience. Well, one thing that's interesting that you told me is that you, you go and you work in the volunteer center there in the 257 building. You're very young, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you're probably one of the few people there that actually have previous Olympic experience because you volunteered in Atlanta. So even though you're very young, how did that experience in Atlanta help you do your volunteer role there in Salt Lake? Um, I, I think it was, it was the idea that the volunteers are the heart of the game, uh, are the game. And, um, you know, I, I started in 99 and then a year later I, I went to Sydney. I volunteered there as well. And then also performed in the closing ceremony. And it was one of those things again, that as I took those experiences into Salt Lake, it was creating those experiences that would be memorable for the guests that were going to be coming to the games, as well as the volunteer. Um, the experience had to be just as powerful for the volunteer giving up their time um, as, as it would be for anybody else. And so it was, it was the idea of creating experiences and opportunities and talking, you know, kind of being that voice on the other end, because you have these volunteers that are signing up that want to participate and they don't know anything. So kind of guiding them through the process. This is going to be a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. You know, it's, it's, uh, it'll be memorable, but it's, you're going to work for it. What was Sydney like? What was it like to be participating in those closing ceremonies? Um, Sydney was amazing. I, I, Sydney has a very special place in my heart. Uh, the people were great, you know, and, and if you look at uh, the history of the game, Sydney is widely considered, a, you know, one of the best. Um, it was beautiful venues, beautiful city, beautiful people. They were welcoming. They were, you know, they were just everything you could imagine. And I think Salt Lake took all of that, that they learned from Sydney as well. And I remember, uh, you know, one experience coming off the train in Sydney at late in the morning after working and you had the volunteers standing there singing songs at the subway station. And, you know, same thing here. It was those volunteers who were out in the cold in the middle of a snowstorm that were still just singing and dancing. And those experiences are what you remember. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember what events necessarily I saw or let alone who was competing in those events, but I remember those volunteers when I got there and, uh, and my little group from the closing ceremony were amazing. I They took me out one night. We went on a boat trip around Sydney Harbor, and they just told me all about Sydney. And it was just, you know, friends that you, you meet for life. Um, you know, and I, there are some friends that I, I met in Sydney that came to Salt Lake and live in Utah now, or we're still friends. And so I think that's the beauty also of the games is you meet friends from all over for life. It is a beautiful thing about the games. Listening to you talk about these things with a lot of enthusiasm and very, very fond memories of all of it, it sounds to me like this was more than a job or even a career. It was almost like a way of life for you. <laughs> um, 
Possibly. Yeah. I, you know, my parents used to say, um, it's a once in a lifetime experience. And after I, I did Salt Lake, I went on to Athens and Torino. And by then they kind of just stopped saying that and they realized, well, we know where David's going to be every couple of years. It'll be, you know, wherever the games are. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for me, that's what it is now. It's that's regardless of what I'm doing, I'm going to plan my schedule. If I'm volunteering, if I'm getting paid or whatever, um, I've always told myself that because of my experience in Atlanta, that I wanted to still do some volunteer role, even if I was paid. Uh, and, and I've been able to do that. Um, so, you know, in, uh, for example, in Beijing, I worked uh, with Volkswagen was our client. I was working with Jet Set Sports, but I was able to still work and volunteer at the media center with the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, and so it's always kind of been my way that because of everything it's given me, I've wanted to give back. And to be able to just share that with uh, you know other people, it's it's an amazing experience to get involved with the game. You, you know that you've done a few of them yourself. So. I've done a few, uh, but not from a volunteer perspective. I've been working well either as a part of the organizing committee or you know with a federation or some other affiliated stakeholder or a consulting firm. But uh, but not as a volunteer. So I think I'm missing out on that experience. Maybe I'll go try to volunteer for one of them one of these days. It's a it's a different, unique experience. You know, you get to see both sides of, of kind of the whole games experience. All right. Well, let's come back to Salt Lake. What's it like to uh, what was the term you were you, you the audience leader yeah. in the ceremonies? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what that entails and uh how much fun was it to be there getting the audience all fired up during the ceremonies audience theater was great it was um we it started out as an audition and we we literally had to go stand in the middle of the stage i want to say even was maybe west high and uh they literally gave us a little script and they said say this script and then they said come up with an experience just what would you do to get the crowd riled up you know and excited um, an audience leader is basically, uh, you were with a partner and you had two of you in a designated section of the stadium, Rice Eccles Stadium for the opening and closing ceremony. Um, and in a lot of the ceremonies, uh, they like to do that crowd interaction. So whether it's a flashlight or put up a, you know, placard that forms some big picture for the television, you know, to, to see, um, that was the job was to keep the crew or sorry, <laughs> wrong, wrong area, keep the, the audience excited, um, and, and motivated and part of kind of this experience, really bringing them into the experience of the ceremony itself. Um, so I did that and uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Probably one of my favorite experiences um, in, in the sense that for the closing ceremony, I had my mom and dad in my section. So that was really cool to kind of be able to finish, you know, three years of, of hard work and have your parents sitting there being like, yeah, this is everything I've done. And, they get to see it and be a part of it. So it was really cool. That is really cool that you're able to celebrate that with your family there in the closing ceremony. You just mentioned there that it was three years of hard work. Why don't you tell us about some of the hard things that had to be done and some of the, well, some of the creative ways that you found to overcome some of the challenges that you faced in those three years? It was a, a, a very different experience working with the, on the volunteer side. Part of it, as I mentioned, was Salt Lake was the first to really use internet applications. Um, and, you know, a credit to Salt Lake, we had about, I believe, 70,000 people apply or fill out the internet application. And uh, one challenge we had with that was just being able to 
get people to do it correctly. <laughs> I know on uh, one of the other podcasts, they mentioned the like languages that people said they spoke. And uh, sometimes when we would get the application, if they didn't want to enter it into the internet, they could send it to, to the, the service center and we would get them and we would feel like we had doctors writing out these applications and we'd sit there and, you know, we wanted everyone to participate, but we had to come up with some pretty creative ways to try and figure out what on earth people had written on their application so that they, they could be in there, um, you know, accurate, accurately. Um, one of the challenges was we found was after, <laughs> after we began taking phone calls, um, you know, we, we were not able to use everybody. And I think what, one of the great things was, uh, that we didn't really have to come up with, but you know, others in the organization came up with was adding additional volunteers. Um, I believe the Olympic Medals Plaza wasn't originally going to have volunteers. And then we created uh, Games Time Employment. Uh, we cre- they created um, the area where you could help create the audience packets for the opening and closing ceremony. Um, some of the, the perks weren't necessarily the same, uh, but then at, you know, adding those additional uh, volunteers allowed more to participate. Um, but as people were being told no or different things like that, um, sometimes a phone call when they would call the service center wasn't enough and they would find out where we were stationed <laughs> and sometimes they'd come down and visit. Um, so it was often a, you know, an office thing of whose turn is it to go out and talk to the upset volunteer outside and, you know, gathering their information as fast as we could because they just kind of show up and we didn't know who it was. And, uh, you know, so it was, you know, while a challenge, it was still an opportunity because we were able to then talk to that that volunteer and, and be able to usually turn something that either they just didn't understand or here's why we can't use you um, into, you know, a great opportunity. Um, along those lines was the fact that, again, because we had so many volunteers, we had to be real specific. You had to be 11 to 17 days. You had to have that games time address. But again, everybody else on uh, you know, in the other buildings, we're able to come up with opportunities where we could allow as many volunteers to participate um, by creating those additional uh, jobs. The volunteer workforce was great. And I think that you and your colleagues there in 257 did a great job trying to, you know, recruit and select and train and and uh, schedule and uniform and feed <laughs> all of this uh, you know this this huge uh, this huge workforce so thank you very much for doing that now david i know that you know because of our conversations and also because i can see you on video that you came here extremely prepared you show me this sheet of paper with all these notes on it typewritten so you've given this a lot of thought and i want to make sure that we give you ample time to hit the key points that are on your list. So aside from what you've talked about so far, what, what other really interesting stories do you have there on your list that you can share with us today? You know, just understanding the whole volunteer aspect and, and kind of the, everything from our side was just a, a different experience. Being in 257, every time we went to the main building, we felt like we were in a totally different world. We were like, Ooh, this is where all the big people are. And, you know, in the big building and, it was, you know, we were there and we, we did our job and we had amazing people. And the volunteers program, while it was mainly obviously for the games time experience, really extended through the whole time. I'm sure each area had individuals that would just come in and volunteer on their own. 
Um, and that was, I think, motivation for us to continue to do our job. We had a couple um, that would come in two, two, three times a week, uh, Bill and Elaine Burroughs. And they, I think, came in for a good two or three years, literally just coming in, volunteering their time, helping us enter all of the applications, helping us move people around, um, getting them into the training. Um, and then we also had another individual, uh, Viola, Viola Tolis, and she was 75. She'd retired, but she wanted to participate. Um, and she literally was there, I think, four times a week. And she came in and she would answer the phones. And, you know, she, she wasn't necessarily the best at learning a computer, but she learned it. And she just sat down and she did it. You know, she did what she needed. Uh, she did what was asked. She helped with the mailing. She helped with uh Everything back then was still mail, if you really think about. It. So we're sending out thirty thousand envelopes to to training and the volunteers for sessions. Uh, but she was there, and it was those experiences and and having volunteers come in to volunteer for the volunteer department that really helped. I think push the rest of us to realize this is something unique that we're creating here in Utah. You know, one of the really interesting aspects of the volunteer program is. Unlike some other areas of the organizing committee, like accreditation, for example, they're really focused on their games time operation. But your operation actually spans several years, right? It's not like, okay, we're just active the 17 days of the games or a few months before the games, but you're actually simultaneously doing some games time planning and you're also operational, uh, which can create some challenges, right? Because you have, you know, you're planning work and other things that you have to do, but then you've got to go talk to the unhappy volunteer who comes into the 257 building who takes time out of your day. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that and how you were able to kind of, you know, balance those those sometimes competing objectives, you know, of trying to get all of the games time preparations done. And then you have to go put out fires every day. Yeah, we we had an amazing team over there. Uh, you know, Kristen Lundgren, Leslie, um, Marsha Goff became kind of in charge of the operations center. Uh, Christina Miller, um, they were all there and they were so great at kind of giving us our assignments. Um, I often got a lot of the little projects. So if you recall, in fact, uh, if you remember putting and getting your individual once in a lifetime folder for training, that was, that was me. So when I, this is, uh, I had my mom's and I actually wrote her a personal note when she attended training. So she would get that, but, uh, that was one of my jobs. So I kind of did some of those little projects. So uh, by being, we just had our assignments and it really was what enabled us to kind of move forward and balance everything out, knowing that, you know, every day you were going to spend time dealing with internet uh, applications and every day you were going to deal with some phone calls and every day it was going to be projects from other areas. What, how can we help you? Um, so it really was kind of that great teamwork. We had an amazing team that continued to grow and, uh, you know, we just had great people. Uh, like like all the other areas that made the game successful and made our area successful and, and work. Well, you did have a great team there. We interviewed Kristen a few weeks ago. It was a couple of months ago, I guess by now actually, and and she was wonderful. And I remember Leslie, Christina Miller. You had Denise there. Lots of wonderful people. Rich Canaday, who we also interviewed, worked out there. Um, it was a really really great team. And and like you, I really feel like the people are the are the best aspect of the games. You know, you just get to make these relationships. Like you say, many of them last a very, very long time for a lifetime even. What else have you got on your list there, David? Uh, you know, I just, I, you know, I think I would say 
participating in the games is just a, a unique experience. Um, you know, and anyone, you know, all of us that did it in Salt Lake were, were just lucky. Um, and I think for me, I had, uh, it was such an amazing opportunity to be able to, to kind of dabble in a bunch of different areas. Um, you know, I mentioned, uh, one of my favorite experiences and stories for good or for bad, maybe, but, uh, I worked with the mascots and Jeff Weiniger. Um, I was friends with Cosmo the Cougar at BYU for four years. And uh, so doing, uh, being friends with Powder and Copper, because I wasn't tall enough to be friends with Cole, <laughs> kind of made perfect sense. Um, and one of the great things we had the opportunity to do was to go and participate in the kickoff session. Um, and they always had one of the mascots come out. And uh, one, of, one experience I had was uh, I was with, uh, I believe it was Copper that day. And uh, we had different, if you recall, celebrities that kind of helped with the kickoff. So Steve Young, Donny Osmond, Kurt Bester, um, things like that. And Kurt Bester was our, our celebrity, so to speak, for the kickoff session. And he went out and he went and played this, this amazing song. And he's an amazing uh, a keyboardist and composer. Uh, and then Copper went out and he also played the piano. <laughs> and he went out and, and did the Olympic theme song and... Everybody went nuts, and then uh, Copper went off stage. And I don't know if uh, Kurt Bester was exactly um, the happiest for possibly being upstaged a little bit by a, a coyote, <laughs> uh, but it was a it was a great experience, and uh, you know I, I've never forgotten that. And uh, you know it was again one of those opportunities to just get involved with the games and the many aspects of the games. Off, um, I've told many people when they said, "Well." What if I want to get involved? I say the Olympics is its own world. Anything you ever wanted to do in your life, you can do within the Olympic Games. As you mentioned, Salt Lake was one stop on an Olympic journey for you. You've participated in many games editions in a variety of roles. And I'm curious if there were certain things that you learned there in Salt Lake that were you were able to apply in future games editions or other aspects of your career as you've gone on and continued this amazing journey? Patience. <laughs> um, you know, I think patience and the goodness of people. Um, you know, I, I worked with NBC in Athens and uh, we had to be very patient there. You, you learn and you learn um, working with the volunteers it's a, it's a process, you know, getting them to understand the games, understand what they're going to be doing, under, getting them to understand the amount of work involved. Uh, and so kind of guiding them along through, through that process. And uh, we got to Athens and they are amazing people and very laid back. And so it was trying to balance that culture with, you know, being in the games where everything is go, 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 but being respectful as well. Uh, of, of their needs and, and where they come from and who they are. Um, so I would definitely say just kind of patience. Um, and the, the goodness of people, you know, there are good people all around and they want to give back. And if that's through the Olympics or through whatever means they can do, um, you know, they just want to be a part of, of something. And I think for me, because I was able to be a part of it in Atlanta, you know, that's where it just has continued that I will do whatever I can if I'm in a position to help you to be able to experience the games. Um, it's changed my life. I know it can change their lives in, in, in any myriad of ways. Um, so 
uh, th- those were probably a couple things I've learned. Uh, you know, again, just understanding culture, you know, the, the beautiful world that we live in. I think sometimes it's very easy to get lost in our own little bubble of this is what it's like and how it should be. And, uh, you know, the games are always a reminder uh, that we're just one small little speck in this big world. Um, and, uh, you know, having done now 11 games, being able to to travel around the world and meet people from these amazing cities and countries. Um, and realize that, you know, they're, they're the same as me. We're all trying to make our little difference in the world. And, you know, the games are that um, opportunity that brings us all together. Um, and again, you can take those experiences. And like you said, you have friends for life and opportunities um, that you never knew existed. I'm really grateful that you brought up the goodness of people as a key learning, because as I look back, that's probably the most important thing that I learned is that 99% or more of the people on this planet are good people and they want the same thing. They want some peace and they want some stability and they want some way to provide opportunities for themselves and their families, you know? So I really appreciate you bringing that lesson up because I think it's a really important lesson for everybody to keep in mind, particularly these days when we're dealing with this confluence of pandemic, economic implosion, and social unrest. I think it's important for us to kind of take a step back and remember that, you know what, people are generally speaking, they are really, really good people and we all want the same thing. So thank you for bringing that to the fore. Now, serious time over. Let's get back to fun time to wrap us up. Uh, I had my assignments for you. And the first one is a music assignment. So is there a particular song or a group that, you know, whenever you hear them today, it immediately takes your mind back to your time with the Salt Lake 2002 organizing committee? Um, yeah, this was tough. There were actually a, a couple. Um, the first one was actually um, from Atlanta, The Power of the Dream by Celine Dion. And that was the song she sang in the opening ceremony. Um, and that's kind of always stuck with me because it's been that that was the start of my experience. And, you know, it, to continue to go on through each game, that was kind of the kickoff um, for more specifically Salt Lake. Uh, good old Aaron Copeland's hoedown <laughs> from the opening ceremony. Uh, you know, love that. Um, the clip section that's in front of that as well. Um, anything John Williams. Uh, you know, I, I'm a huge John Williams fan. And I think that's really comes from his Olympic experience. And he's an, he's an amazing composer. Um, so I'd say those three, um, you know, the official, the whole official soundtrack is amazing from the opening ceremony. So, uh, there's just, yeah, a lot of great music. Uh, when it came to metals Plaza, hands down bare naked ladies. I know a lot of people have said that, but, oh, they, uh, they are amazing. And it's funny. I'm not a big music person. I, um, I mean, I play various instruments, but I'm the worst at if I hear a song, knowing who sings it. Um, but uh, I remember picking up on Bare Naked Ladies and loving their stuff and, uh, you know, was there that night. But uh, uh, that was a, a great memory. Great music. Great, great band. All excellent choices. And you would make the really important women in my life. Very happy. My mother is a huge Aaron Copeland fan. She played that Appalachian spring all the time. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, she, 
she always had pl- classical music on and she she loved Aaron Copeland. My wife is a huge Celine Dion fan, so she'll be appreciate the shout out to Celine Dion. So thank you very much for mentioning those. We'll make sure to get those on the Spotify playlist if we can. You know, another part of that music was the coming around the mountain when it went from air, that whole section, you know, I think it's even number 13 on the soundtrack, but you know, there, it was just really cool to have, you know, 60, 70,000 people singing. She'll be coming around the mountain (laughs) and, and, you know, song everybody pretty much grows up with and just being played, you know, right there in in front of everybody. And that, that was, that whole section was just a really neat experience. Yeah, that was awesome. Yes. People around here definitely know that song. So you didn't have any problems getting people to sing it. Nope. That was the easiest part of being an audience leader. <laughs> All right. Now let's turn our attention to food. Was there a particular restaurant that you liked to frequent when you were working at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Gourmandies. Yeah, I know it's been said a few times, but oh, they had the best like club sandwiches. And, uh, you know, being at 257 was literally just down a couple blocks. But, oh, that was great. Well, it's funny. I just took my car to get service last week. And it is the dealership is not far from Gourmandise. I had to drive over there and get a couple of pan au chocolates. Yeah, I'm with you. I love Gourmandise. So that's a very worthy addition to the map. You're right. Several people have already mentioned it, but they mentioned it because it was good. So you're in great company. And now our final question for you today. What's your favorite Olympic memory? What's the goosebump moment for you? You've mentioned so many great memories already, but if you had to choose one favorite memory of the games here in Salt Lake, what would it be? I think it was being able to spend time with my family. Um, I uh, I come from a family we're very close. There's six of us. Three of us are adopted. I was born in Costa Rica. And my parents adopted me when I was 10 months old. Um, and we uh, were just able to... You know, working for the committee gave me the opportunity to allow my family to participate and get them excited about participating. Um, and they all basically had the chance to either go to the opening or the dress rehearsal. Um, and really, it was just, you know, as a family, it was an amazing bonding time. Um, you know, we weren't always necessarily together because a lot of them were volunteering. My mom volunteered. My sisters volunteered. Um, but it was kind of that process. I, as I went through my Olympic process, they were right there with me. Um, and as I kind of mentioned at the closing ceremony with my parents being in, in that, in my section as an audience leader, to kind of just look back and be like, we've all been on this journey for three years. Um, you know, there were times where my dad was like school, you need to focus on school. And I was like, no, I'm going to do the Olympics. And, you know, to be able to, at the end of that, just kind of you know, give a sigh of relief and be like, that was our journey, not my journey, but I was able to carry my family along and they were now able to understand why I love the Olympics so much and why it meant so much to me, how it impacted my life. And that was very rewarding. Well, did they have a great experience and did they fall in love with the Olympics too, as you did? Uh, They did. They've they've not uh, really traveled to any other games, but they are uh, my biggest fan club. And absolutely completely supportive when I'm like, Oh, I'm going to Russia or I'm going to South Korea or, um, you know, they're amazing, uh, amazing family and amazing parents. Well, hopefully in the not too distant future, the games will return here to Salt Lake city and you and your family can get involved one more time. Absolutely. I can't, I can't wait. It's already been too long. Agreed. All right, David. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule today to join us from Provo. 
And if listeners want to connect with you to share these memories or to learn more about the things that you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, I'm on, uh, there's multiple ways. I'm, uh, if it's Instagram, it's Dippy Dog Dave, D-I-P-P-Y D-A-W-G Dave. Um, if it's on, uh, uh, Facebook, it's David E. Zumbrennan. Uh, and then my email is dzumbrennan at yahoo.com. And that's D Z is in zebra, U M is in Mary, B is in boy, R E N is in Nancy, N is in Nancy. Well, I have to ask about the origin of Dippy Dog Day. Um, Goofy uh, is my favorite Disney character, and his birthday, or I guess I should say my birthday, is the same day as Goofy's, May twenty fifth. And Goofy's original name was Dippy Dog. That's awesome. I love Goofy as well. It's one of the few voices that I can do. My daughter always likes it when I do the Goofy voice. So perfect way to end our little podcast. Listeners, please like and subscribe, and we'll talk to you again next week. David, thank you again so much for joining. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you, Christian. My pleasure.